As a, a way of introduction, my name is Stephen Sprague. Uh, I'm the Dean of Students at Heritage Christian Academy, um, the school that is overseen by um, the Planting Church of Christ the Redeemer, Redeemer in Overland Park. Um, that's where my family worships, and I bring you greetings from there. I'm an ordained minister in the, the PCA, uh, and it's a, a blessing to me when I get to um, visit local PCA churches and and um, be uh, a part of, of the word of the Lord being ministered to his people. And so um, thank you for, for having me and allowing me to be here. I also uh, am blessed to have just gotten off vacation from um, visiting San Diego, and there we were able to, to visit um, many other sister churches in the PCA, uh, New Life Presbyterian Church, El Camino Presbyterian Church, and um, some of the saints from Harbor Community Church. And so uh, I bring greeting from them as well. Now this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 23. And 1 Samuel 23, uh, you know, as I, it's always weird for me. I always feel like I have to give some sort of explanation for why uh, this passage when it's a one-off sermon like this. Um, but Samuel is one of my favorite books. First um, and Second Samuel I love. When I was in a high school, I remember as I was um, graduating from high school, I spent a lot of time reading through Samuel and Kings and Judges and Joshua, just those books over and over and over again because I loved, um, in one sense, I loved the blood, guts, and gore. I loved like the excitement. I loved the battles. I loved the victories. I loved all of that, right? And even though the wickedness was just crazy um, that you would see sometimes. And, and, uh, and Samuel was like the, the top of that for me. Um, and what I really liked about Samuel is just that dichotomy that you see throughout Samuel uh, as um, you see Saul, who's called to be king by the people, a, a king like the kings of the other nations, and it turns, he turns away from God and, and pursues after his own desires, his own uh, wants, his own interests, his own passions, and, he, and he's a terrible king as far as the Lord is concerned and as far as how he takes care of the people of Israel. And then you have David who's called and raised up uh, and he's uh, anointed as king while Saul is still king. He's not from the line of Saul. Uh, he's a, a humble shepherd boy. And yet he's presented, especially in 1 Samuel, as a king who's after the Lord's heart, who, who desires what the Lord desires and who has compassion on God's people. And so um, this passage really kind of is the, I would say, the, like the culmination of this comparison that's been building in Samuel up until this point between what Saul is like as a king and what David is like as the anointed king of Israel to come after Saul. Um, very different. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to pause and to reflect and to say, what does a godly leader look like as we look at this passage? Now, I want to give a little bit of backstory before we read the text. Um, up until this point, you have David, a shepherd boy who's been anointed as king. He's been called um, to be uh, the, the musician that soothes Saul because Saul is tormented by God because he's wicked and evil. Um, you have David um, coming forth on the battlefield in that famous scene where he kills Goliath. Um, you have David then uh, marrying uh, Saul's daughter, and even Saul asks David to marry his daughter. It's all part of a trick in his mind that he tells David, all you have to do is kill a hundred Philistines, um, and then you can have my daughter as your, your bride. 
And his whole purpose in that is thinking, surely one of those 100 will kill David and he'll be dead. Because Saul is at this point becoming more and more jealous of him. Um, David kills 200 Philistines and gets Saul's daughter as his bride. Uh, and it says that Saul's daughter loves him. Like they, they, they had a true, genuine, um, loving relationship, it appears. Um, you have David then on the run from Saul as Saul pursues him and decides to, to kill him. Uh, as his jealousy continues to compound and compound. And it gets to this point when David is fleeing in chapter 21, so two chapters before our passage, where David goes to this town called Nob. This is one of the cities uh, of priests that was set up by God to be a place of, of refuge. Uh, and, and David runs there. He flees there. And he's kind of cryptic in a way. He talks to Ahimelech, the main priest, but he says, I need food. I need a weapon. I'm on a mission. Um, he doesn't tell him he's running from Saul. He just says, I'm on a mission. I need food. I need, I need a weapon. And Ahimelech gives him bread from the altar of the Lord, um, consecrated as holy unto God, but he gives it to him. And then he gives him the sword that he used to kill Goliath. And then David continues on. Now Saul finds out about this. Uh, and Saul goes to Nob, and he's furious. And when he gets to Nob, uh, Saul questions the priest, interrogates them, really. And then he commands that they all be killed. Every last priest in the city. And none of Saul's soldiers will do it. None of them. They're like, no way. We're not killing the people who are meant to mediate between us and Yahweh. Us and the Lord God Almighty. We're not going to do it. So Saul looks to this wicked, evil man, Doeg. He's an Edomite, not even an Israelite. But he's become like a close, close, like inner circle sort of person in the life of Saul. And he says, you, kill him. And Doeg kills them all. All the priests, all the women, all the children, infants, and all their animals. All but one, Abiathar, who flees. He gets out of there. Somehow he makes it out alive. And he runs and he finds refuge in David. And he's not the only person who's found refuge in David. David goes from being alone to amassing this army of, of 400 people that weren't warriors, they weren't soldiers, they weren't any of that. It says, the way it describes them in, in verse 2 of chapter 22, it says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. Those were the people who came to David the people who were hurting and in need, and they joined his army. Much like Abiathar the priest. That brings us to our passage today. This is the word of the Lord. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? I mean, that shows how, sorry, I'm interrupting, how weak and scared and fearful this army is. They're not an army of trained soldiers. Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. 
When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender, surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshmon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an in the Rabbah to the south of Jeshmon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come before you today with grateful hearts. Lord, we're glad to be in your presence. Glad to be out, drawn out of the ordinary uh, lives that we live to be able to worship you this morning with your people. And glad to hear your word as you speak to us today. 
And we ask that you prepare our hearts now to hear all that you have said to us. Lord, that your spirit would apply these words to our very souls and that we might grow, Lord, as you have called us to. That we might be challenged, that we might be encouraged, that you would create in us a new or greater faith in the salvation that you have won for us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen. The sermon is titled A Tale of Two Kings, and part of what I want to look at today as we look at this passage is comparing the two kings, comparing David and comparing Saul. And so we're going to look with two lenses, and the first lens is that, uh, a lens in which we consider what does a righteous leader look like compared to that of a wicked leader. And the other lens is to kind of take that and consider with our own hearts what our own righteousness should look like and what our own needs for a righteous deliverer should look like. And with that, we have three points today to kind of structure all of this. The first is the authority of the king. The second is the accountability of the king. And the last, the salvation of the king. The authority of the king. My question here is, who is acting as the true king of Israel? Remember that scene from chapter 22 that I described to you. When, when Saul descends on the city of Nob, and, and he commands a command so wicked that even his most faithful soldiers will not carry it out. To slaughter all the priests. And yet, Doeg does it. And they die, right? All the priests, all their wives, all the women and children, the animals. Again, it's, it's horrific. Contrast that with the beginning of chapter 23. Here, David and men find out about the Philistines attacking Keilah. And how does David respond? And we don't know how he finds out, but it says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. This is how David responds. He inquires of the Lord, should I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. And David's men speak up. They say to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David again goes to the Lord. And the Lord answers him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David here, in the beginning of chapter 23, he takes his small army at a, a moment's notice. It's, it's quick. And he goes to save the people of Keilah from the Philistines. It's not convenient. This is completely out of his way if he was going somewhere where he could be safe from the armies of Saul and the pursuit of Saul. It's foolish from a strategy perspective in every single way. But these are people, his people, the people of Israel, the ones that he's been anointed to one day rule over as king. And he can't help but recognize their need for someone to come save them. Remember what kind of army he's working with. As he described it, or as, as Samuel described it, they're the ones in distress, the ones who were in debt, the ones who were bitter in soul. They, they weren't the warrior soldiers of Israel that Saul had at his command. 
and they're fearful, right? They cry out, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? They have every single reason to be afraid. And yet, they trust in David. Why? Because David trusted in God. And they recognized that. God had promised them, I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. I will win the battle. This is where it really becomes clear here the difference between the two kings. Between Saul and David. And it's in the authority behind each king. It's the thing that makes them different. David's inquiry to the Lord a second time that convinces the people, right? I will give the Philistines into your hand, the Lord says. And this ragtag army says, yes, we will go with you. And they do it, and the Lord gives them victory. Saul, on the other hand, throughout this passage, remember, you've seen what he thinks of the priests. He did away with them in Nob. But throughout this passage... He's driven by sinful passion. He's driven by bloodlust. He's driven not by who he's called to serve, but by what he wants for himself. And he wants David and his men dead. He wants everyone and everything who's ever helped David to die and to suffer. In verse 7, after Saul finds out that David is in Keilah, apparently an easy city to lay siege to because the Philistines were just there. He rejoices and he says, God has given him. God has given David into my hand. So now he's speaking as if he knows what the will of the Lord is. In verse 17, this is where it gets ironic, Jonathan tells David that Saul knows that David is going to be the next king, that God has already anointed him king. So Saul knows that, and yet Saul is saying, God has delivered David into my hands by trapping him at Keilah. Later on in this chapter, in verse 21, when the Ziphites, which are David's own flesh and blood, when they tell Saul where David is hiding and promise to find him, root him out, and give him over to Saul, look at what Saul says. In verse 21, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord. That's Yahweh. He's using the personal name for God. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Not only is he saying that he knows what God's will is, that God will deliver David to him, but now he's blessing other people in the name of the Lord, for their sin. Because he's about to get what he wants. As if God wants to bless those who support his enemy. And David again, always seeking God's will at this point in his life, when it comes to rescuing Keilah, or, yeah, rescuing Keilah, when it comes to after that, right? He's like, God, is Saul going to find me here? Is he going to slaughter me and my men here? And he has something that Saul doesn't have, which kind of shows us that David understands the laws of the Lord, shows us that he understands the hierarchy of the Lord, shows us that he understands how the Lord has already promised to communicate to his people. He has a priest. The priest has an ephod. Now, we don't know... a lot about, I mean, like scholars don't know a lot about what an ephod is, as far as like what it looked like, any of that. Not entirely sure. What we do know that this was a God-sanctioned thing. Really, this is where we learn the most about an ephod is from this passage. This is a God-sanctioned tool that the priest used to communicate between his people and him. Used by the priests, not by David, to communicate to the Lord. 
And David has these because Saul slaughtered all the other priests and Abiathar fled to him. But David knows that if he's going to seek the Lord, this is how he's to do it, right? And so he does. He has this direct line of communication between him and God through this ephod and through the priest. And David shows through this his dependence upon God. He doesn't rely on military strategy. He doesn't rely on his gut instincts. He doesn't rely on anything else but this greater authority that he has, the Lord God Almighty. You want to know what a good leader looks like. It's the one who depends upon the authority of God, who doesn't look inward like Saul does in this passage, but who looks outward to the Word of God for direction. And it's one who mirrors for us what it looks like to do that. Do you see David doing here? And yet, when we look at stuff like this, it's good for us to examine our hearts and to ask ourselves the question, have we ever acted out of the passion of the moment instead of stopping to find out what God would have us do? Have we ever sinned knowingly because we wanted something for ourselves? Have you ever put yourself first in a way that put others down, caused you to trample over or climb over them so that you could succeed for your own selfish gain? and justified it in some way, shape, or form. That is Saul in this passage. And I think it's something that we are all guilty of. And, and David will do this in his own life. I mean, he's not immune to this. But it's not the thing that, that the Scriptures use to highlight kind of who is at the heart of this man. At the end of the day, he's a man who repents, confesses his sin, and turns again to the authority of the Lord time and time again. And you see that here in this passage. Which brings us to our second point. The accountability of the king. Because David is a human. He's a man who needs help. He's a man who's on the run. He's a man who's desperate, who's hungry, who's thirsty, who's probably tired and fatigued of running at every point. And yet, in the next five verses of this passage, in 14 through 18, we have someone come and hold David accountable. And he's this man named Jonathan. Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel in, in the, the truest sense. He's the son of Saul. He would be the next king of Israel. Saul wants him to be the next king of Israel. Um, but Jonathan is also David's greatest friend. And he's already, at multiple times throughout the book of Samuel, told David that he knows that David is going to be the next king over Israel. In his actions and his words, he showed him that. He recognizes that, and he's committed to David. Let's read verses 14 through 18 again. It says, David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This scene, if you're, if you're just reading straight through um, Samuel, this scene is meant to be a little bit of a dramatic pause. Tensions are rising. 
you feel like you're about to get to kind of the climax of this passage, and yet all of a sudden you have this scene where things slow down, and Jonathan enters in, the crown prince, and he finds David hiding in the wilderness, in the hills, and he chooses to take this time to encourage David in the most powerful way. It says to strengthen his hand. And here, Jonathan is meant to stand in contrast to everyone else, virtually. I mean, he's in contrast to his father, Saul, who believes that David has give, or God has given David into his hand. He's literally said, God has given him into my hands. And yet, Saul, Jonathan comes and strengthens his hand. He's in contrast to the, the royal armies of Saul, who are God's people and yet pursuing him day and night. In contrast to the Kelites, who were rescued by David and yet are willing to turn David over to Saul. And the Ziphites who are coming up, who are more than willing to give David over to Saul. In fact, they seek Saul out. It's not that Saul is coming to them, but they find Saul and say, he's here with us. Come get him. We'll find out what cave he's in. And yet here's Jonathan pursuing him into the wilderness just to encourage him. Everyone is against David. But Jonathan's purpose is unique. It's like a wall at the ocean that stands there stopping the waves from crashing into the shore. Jonathan stands with David, and it says in verse 16, he strengthened his hand in God. He fortifies David. He builds him up. He keeps him accountable to his calling. This is one of his primary purposes. And how does he do this? He reminds David of the things that God has promised him. He says, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Why? Because you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. For those of us who believe in the promises of God, there is nothing, nothing that sustains us more than remembering what the Lord has guaranteed for us. And some of you have really experienced that in your lives. Sometimes when we're on the run, in a sense, sometimes when we're overcome by, by trials, overcome by grief, overcome by depression, overcome by despair, by physical limitations, whatever they are, Sometimes the promises of God are the furthest things from our minds. And all we want is a friend who we can gossip with. All we want is a friend who can join us in complaining about how hard our lot in life is. All we want is a friend who will encourage us to act in whatever our fleshly desires are in our sinful way that we feel justified to do so. But that's not a good friend. And that's not what Jonathan does here. He doesn't go to David and says, woe is you. No. David already knows that. I'm sure he listens to David. He hears him out. He's a shoulder to cry, but he's more than that. He reminds David that the Lord has promised that he's going to be the next king, that he's called them to a greater calling, and that he will keep him alive. Saul will not be able to get a hold of him. He reminds David of the faithfulness of the Lord, the very thing that David needed most during this time. He's a true source of encouragement for David in the midst of what must have seemed like a season of chaos that would never end as he ran from Saul's tireless pursuit. And Jonathan had the most to lose of anyone. The life of David would mean that he wouldn't be king 
And he had the most to gain from David's death. But he wasn't caught up in all of that. He was a faithful friend and brother in the Lord. Saul is surrounded in contrast by people who will just bend at his will. By wicked men like Doag the Edomite who will fuel his evilness instead of trying to to squelch it. He's surrounded by yes men, so to speak, in the worst possible way. And yet David has friends like Jonathan that remind him of his true calling, what it really means to be king of Israel, what it really means to trust in and follow after the Lord God Almighty. This should cause us to pause and to stop and to ask ourselves, what, what kind of a friend are we? What kind of a brother and sister in Christ are we? Especially in those challenging times. Especially when you want to enjoy the, the gossip, enjoy the whining, join in on it. When you're really feeling that. When push comes to shove, when trials arise, when losing someone or all the things that we gain in this life stand on the horizon even. I think sometimes we're so quick to switch into survival mode or to switch into just delighting in the misery of life. And Jonathan reminds us that in contrast to our sinful tendencies and actions, in contrast to our selfish, sinful nature, there's a better way. At times, a harder way to speak truth to a friend who desperately needs it. A self-sacrificial way to encourage a friend even when it means laying down our own desires, our own interests, or opportunity for gain. For Jonathan here, it's a way that will ultimately lead to his death because he knows what the Lord's plan is and he's willing to submit to it for David to take the throne. But these are the kinds of people that our leaders need to be surrounded by and these are the kind of people that we need to be surrounded by and that we need to be to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to look at the last part of this passage. We're going to skip to verse 24. It says, And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an and the Rabbah, to the south of Jeshmon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines, and therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. The last point, the salvation of the king. I'd like to suggest to you that throughout this narrative, there is something that's greater at work here than comparing David and Saul. And it's this underlying testimony of the providence of God and the salvation of David that's consistent throughout the life of David, especially in chapter 23. We really see it highlighted. At Keilah, God saves the people there. David is the salvation for the people there. And then he saves David and his men when he warns them of the impending siege of Saul. You get to the middle portion, and verse 14, it says, Saul sought David every day, 
But God did not give him into his hand. Even when Saul was the most relentless in his pursuit, David rested in God's hands. The Lord was his salvation. And now here, this is that climax of the passage. When, when things are building, you had the pause, and now the drama is really increasing. And things are heightening and heightening and heightening. And David is running around the mountain, and Saul has realized that, and he's coming around from the other side. He's closing in on David. Right? That capture is impending. David stands no chance. He may not even know that Saul is coming around from the other side, about to get blindsided. Where is his salvation found? In the most unlikely of rescuers, the Philistines. His and Israel's sworn enemies, the very enemy that he fought off in order to save the people of Keilah, they are the ones who now burst onto the scene again in this chapter. And apparently so strongly that Saul has to stop the very thing that's been wrapped up in his, everything his whole life has been wrapped up in up until this point. He has to stop it and go to stop the Philistines. Right when he has David right where he wants them. The Philistines. Now this could only have been from God. And it's not conjecture. David thinks this way. And we know that because there's a psalm that David wrote during this time. Psalm 54. And the heading of the psalm tells us that he wrote this when Saul was pursuing him and God rescued him in the wilderness of Ziph. At the end of Psalm 54, David rejoices and he sings, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. For he, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. He's talking about Saul and Saul's pursuit of him. This passage, this whole story, we see a picture painted of a man whose only source of salvation is the Lord. It's not his strength, not his military might, not his military prowess. And we know that at times David had those things. But it's not that right now. It's the Lord. And this Lord works through things that point us to a greater reality over and over and over again in this passage. He works through these, these types that point us to New Testament fulfillment. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we're told that Jesus is the great high priest, that he's greater than and unlike any priest that has come before him. He's greater than Abiathar. Jesus doesn't just bring us a yes or no through an ephod. No, he gives us direct communication with God. Despite our sinfulness, direct communication with a holy God. As Hebrews 4.16 says, it's through the sinless life, the undeserving death, the triumphal resurrection of Jesus, our great high priest, that with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He gives us true and continual access to the Lord. And Christ is better than Jonathan. He's the son of a greater king. And Christ himself is a king that is the opposite in every way from Saul and a better king than David. He's one who lays down his life so that you and I can be called the people of God. 
He doesn't just risk his life to go save the people of Keilah. He literally lays down his life so that you and I can be heirs to the kingdom of God. And Christ does all of this, not through a military campaign, not through killing Saul and all his men like David could have done at times later on in this passage if surely God was on his side. But no, he does so through the very thing that we all stand in opposition to. Death. Death on a cross. And we're the recipients of that salvation through faith in him. And that's the, the beauty of this passage is that you see David, who's meant to be a picture for us of Christ, and yet here he's one who's dependent upon the Lord for salvation at every turn as he trusts in God. As I said earlier, David wrote the words of Psalm 54 about the events that took place during this time in his life. And I think they're very applicable to us even today. And so I want to end by praying the words from Psalm 54. So let us pray. O God, save us by your name and vindicate us by your might. O God, hear our prayer. Give ear to the words of our mouth. For strangers have risen against us. Ruthless men seek our life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is our helper. The Lord is the upholder of our life. He will return the evil to our enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, we will sacrifice to you. We will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered us from every trouble. And our eye has looked in triumph on our enemies. Lord, we have in you such a great foundation for our faith. In you we have deliverance from our sin. Though our world often seems to point us in different directions and pull us in different directions and crumble around us, you are fixed. You are never changing. You are consistent. You are sovereign over all things. So God, today we ask that you give us comfort in these truths and that you allow us to put our faith in you, Jesus, and nothing else for our salvation. It's in his name that we pray all these things. And to him be all glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.